So this morning, we spoke at length in regards to the wise son's obligation to his neighbor. For one thing, I stated that for us to not do good to others when we have received of the goodness and kindness of God would in fact be hypocritical. Again, this morning, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan recorded in Luke chapter 10. And if you recall, at the conclusion of the parable, Jesus asked this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And of course, the lawyer then answers the one who showed mercy towards him. And then verse 37 goes on to say, Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, this gets to the heart why we're gathered here this evening. My desire is to stir us up, to cry out on behalf of our neighbors. And so in light of that this evening, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 35 to 38. Very, once again, familiar passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 9. beginning in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, it was said that during the COVID-19 pandemic, that it disrupted the food supply. This, in turn, resulted in the destruction of crops. Now, one of the challenges was essentially that they had all of these crops, but they faced a shortage of laborers. You see, farmers generally rely upon seasonal and immigrant workers to plant harvest and process their crops. Movement restrictions and illnesses led to labor shortages, which in turn made it difficult for the crops to be harvested harvested on time. At least that's one story. So the abundant harvest was there, but the laborers were few. 
Now, rewind to a little over 2,000 years ago, we find that there was a similar problem during Jesus' time. At the time, there was a harvest of souls, but the laborers were also few. Would this harvest be destroyed for the lack of laborers? Well, as we will see, not a single soul for whom Christ died would be lost. For indeed, he would raise up laborers for this great work. Now, the pattern set forth by Christ many years ago is the same pattern that we are to follow today. And so this evening, I'd like for us to look at Matthew chapter 9 using the following two headings. First, compassion for the lost. And second, praying for the lost. Again, compassion for the lost and praying for the lost. First, consider that Christ had compassion for the lost. Again, in Matthew chapter 9, we read, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Again, Matthew chapter 9 pictures Jesus going through all of the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom as well as healing people. First, we should observe that Christ did not wait for the people to come to him, but instead he went to the people. His ministry then was an outreach ministry, and his mission was to seek and to save those who were lost. Now, as we see from the text, Christ's ministry was characterized by two things. It was characterized by him teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as well as healing the sick. So Christ's ministry then was characterized by the gospel and good works. You know, sometimes we feel as though we need to choose between the gospel and doing good. But as we saw this morning, it is the duty of the wise son to do good to his neighbor. And so when it comes to ministry, we don't need to choose between the two. Like Christ, the message of the gospel should be accompanied by good works. Now, interestingly, in a different kind of way, our good works confirm that the message of the gospel is true. You say, what do I mean? Well, the miracles that Jesus performed confirmed that his message was true prophetically, whilst the good works that we do 
confirm that the gospel is true practically. To put it in other words, it's like what James says about the relationship between faith and good works in James 2.18. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Again, it's like the man who preaches to his children about Christ and then turns around and beats his wife. The gospel is discredited in the eyes of his children. And so the gospel must be accompanied by good works. Now that being said, unfortunately, the opposite is not true. Sometimes we can do much good to others and they still do not believe. They say that people don't care how much you know until they know, until they see. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. But the truth is, some people know that you care. They just don't care about the gospel. And this should help to manage our expectation regarding the things that we discussed this morning. We need to have a right perspective as to why we do good to our neighbor. We don't do good, for instance, to make the gospel more palatable. Rather, we do good, as we heard a few minutes ago, because it is now our new nature. Now, we as sons of God have been changed. Just like it is the nature of our father and of our older brother to do good unto others, so too is it the same with our new nature. Before, we could care less if our fellow man was perishing. But now that we have experienced the compassion of Christ, we too should have compassion on others. Again, in verse 36 of Matthew 9, we read, Seeing the people, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this word compassion here means to feel pity. It is the same word used, again, of the Samaritan in Luke 10 in regards to the man who fell among the robbers. It says that the Samaritan felt compassion for him. Now, <clears throat> this word compassion is often frequently used of Jesus as well throughout the Gospels. For instance, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, it's the instance of the feeding of the 5,000. It says, when he, that's Jesus, went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed 
their sick. Later in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, we have the account of the feeding of the 4,000. Matthew 15, verse 32 says, And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on their way. Do you think that Jesus was only concerned about their spiritual needs? No. He was concerned about every aspect of man. Again, later in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34, we read of two blind men sitting by the road. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29, it says, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And then it says, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Now, even though it is true that the miracles of Christ confirmed his message prophetically, we should not strictly think of the miracles of Christ in that way. We should not simply think as if Jesus was just trying to fulfill some cold theological prophecy about himself. No, the text that we read, that we just read, says that he had compassion. As J.C. Rowell once noted, our Lord Jesus has had great experience of disease and sickness he was an eyewitness of all the ills that flesh is heir to. He saw ailments of every kind, sort, and description. He was brought in contact with every form of bodily suffering. None were too loathsome for him to attend to. None were too frightful to, for him to cure. There is much comfort to be drawn from this fact. We are each dwelling in a poor, frail body. We never know what quantity of suffering we may have to watch as we sit by the bedsides of dear relations and friends. We never know what racking complaint we ourselves may have to submit to before we lie down and die. But let us arm ourselves betimes with the precious thought that Jesus is specially fitted to be the sick man's friend. Again, Jesus had great compassion as he saw 
the condition of his Jewish brethren spiritually as well. As, we, as he saw the result of sin in disease and sickness, and as he saw the miserable spiritual condition of the people, he actually describes them like sheep going astray. In seeing this state, he had compassion. The leaders of the day were supposed to be the shepherds of the people, but they had substituted the law of God with their own laws, with their own traditions, and instead laid heavy burdens upon the people. And so the practice of the scribes and the Pharisees, far from bringing people closer to God, actually drove them to the gates of hell. Another commentator makes the following observation. Jesus knows that every guilt-laden person in these large crowds is headed for the day of death and for the final judgment. These multitudes suggest a deplorable lack and the necessity of evangelistic labor to make up for this lack. They suggest the imperative need of something similar to the hard work that is required when without delay a crop must be harvested. The huge crowds are therefore very appropriately called the harvest the very extensive field in need of immediate attention. By a legitimate extension of the figure, one can say that this harvest, as here viewed, consisted of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so, what is Jesus' response? He says to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now, this leads us to our second point, which is praying for the lost. Praying for the lost. Christ looking at the crowd before him refers to them as his harvest. I take this to mean that Christ saw the crowds before him as the father's possession in some sense. Perhaps among the crowds there were some who were elect Jews before him that day. But notice that there is a problem. The problem is that the laborers are few. I submit to you that the problem remains the same in the church today. Many are able, but few are willing. Many are content to just sit and to watch. It's almost as if entertainment culture has made its way into our religion. Now this is a very serious problem. But what are we to do about it? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. In verse 38, we read, Therefore, 
beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so, again, what were the disciples to do? The harvest was plentiful. Did Jesus just command them to go and work? No. He commanded them to pray. He says that they are to beseech the Lord of the harvest. Now, the fact that they were to beseech the Lord of the harvest for laborers emphasizes the fact that the work of missions, evangelism, and discipleship is directly dependent upon God. To put it plainly, God is sovereign, and we are shut up to him in these things. He is the one who opens and closes doors, and whatever he ordains is right. And though we may not always understand the why, we can trust his goodness and wisdom. He alone possesses all wisdom and all knowledge, and in his great wisdom and knowledge, he commands us to pray. And this is why we are gathered here this evening. You see, prayer is not the last resort when everything else fails. No, it is actually the primary means by which God accomplishes his sovereign will. The late, great R.C. Sproul puts it well when he says, Does faithful, fervent prayer change the mind of God? The answer is no. But if we ask the other question, Does faithful, fervent prayer change anything? The answer is a resounding yes. Though we cannot hope that our prayers will change God's mind, prevailing upon him to act against his will, we can be sure that prayer does change things, including our own hearts. Plus, it is one of the chief means by which God carries out his will in the world. Again, as the people of God, what is particularly needed in this day is for us to pray. It is no accident that we see Jesus often stealing time away to pray to his heavenly Father. Now, if the God-man prayed every moment that he could to his heavenly Father, what makes us think that we ought not to do the same. We must beseech the Lord of the harvest for the laborers and the harvest. Now, did God answer the prayers of the disciples? Well, the very next chapter informs us that he did. Laborers were indeed sent forth into the harvest. Look with me at just one chapter over 
in chapter 10. Matthew 10, 1 to 7. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into and do not enter any city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Matthew 9.38 is the bridge that connects us to what happens in Matthew chapter 10. We notice that the disciples were given authority by Christ to work miracles and to preach about the kingdom of God. God had answered their prayers. And like the disciples, I believe that when we fervently pray for laborers, God also answers our prayers. And here's the interesting thing. Those who pray are the very ones he equips for the work of evangelism and discipleship. As Matthew Henry notes regarding our passage, observe that Christ said to his disciples who were employed as laborers, they must pray first that God would send them forth. And so... As Jesus was sent by the Father, so in turn he sends his disciples. And he does not send them ill-equipped, but he sends them in the power of the Spirit. Later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, delivers a sermon in the power of the Holy Spirit along with the other apostles. Now, this one sermon resulted in the salvation of 3,000 souls that day. On that day, a mighty harvest was gathered. In the crowds at Pentecost, perhaps were some who had been healed by Christ or heard him preach in the cities and the villages. Perhaps there were some who were even part of the crowd that Jesus referred to as his harvest in Matthew chapter 9. And oh, what a harvest it was on the day of Pentecost. 
Now, another important point to consider is that we also need the Spirit's aid. In fact, we desperately need the Spirit's empowerment to attend our efforts. We cannot artificially manufacture or drum up the effect of the Spirit. We can't produce it with cleverly devised programs or tear-jerking sermons. And though seminary can provide useful tools for expositing scripture, no amount of seminary can replace the empowerment of the Spirit. So let us not trade pneumatology for methodology. Again, in and of ourselves, we cannot produce spiritually mature Christians who will in turn do the work of the ministry. Only God can produce spiritually mature believers. What we can do is pray. Pray that God may raise up workers after his kind that will both live the gospel as well as preach the gospel. Workers who, knowing the depths of their own misery outside of Christ, would have great compassion for the lost, seeing their own misery. This type of genuine compassion is not natural, but supernatural. Compassion for the lost is only divinely impressed upon our hearts and minds as we meditate upon what Christ has done for us. You see, you cannot have compassion for the lost unless you see and understand the compassion that Christ had upon you in your miserable and unbelieving state. Pray, therefore, that God may grant you a sight of yourself in comparison to your Savior. You know, we need to see Christ like the prophet Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. Is it any wonder that after seeing the exalted Christ, that first Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! And then later he cries out, Here am I, send me. Pray therefore that God may grant us laborers who would go forth into the harvest. For there is still wheat that must be brought in to the barn. To stick with the analogy, a farmer does not plant a crop and not expect to reap a harvest. God still has a harvest today, composed not only of Jews, but men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Now Jesus in another parable, says this regarding the poor, the lame, and the sick in the kingdom of God. 
Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And looking at verses 16 to 23, Jesus gives this parable. A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the cities, and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. You see, God's intention is to fill his house before Christ returns. And Christ has not yet returned because there is still room. Now, I love the words of the hymn, How Sweet and Awful is This Place. In the hymn, Isaac Watts says, Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Is that your desire here today? God has promised that his house will be filled. Christ alone is grateful, is greater than the sinfulness of men and the devil, and he will not deny himself of his inheritance. And so let us now turn to a season of prayer that we may do what we have just been exhorted to do by the word of God. This evening, There are several things that 
I would like for us to pray for as a body. <clears throat> we want to pray for bo- both uh, corporate um, evangelistic efforts as well as individual efforts. And so we want to pray for things like the Health Pregnancy Center Ministry. We want to pray for uh, the ladies who are going there, as well as the ladies who have come so far. We want to also pray for new opportunities for us, a, for us as a church to reach out to our community with the gospel. We also want to pray for our family members, our friends, our co-workers, those whom we come in contact with day by day that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with. We want to pray that God would soften hearts, that the spirit would regenerate and give life to hear the gospel so that they turn in faith and repentance. We also want to pray, even as I mentioned this morning, we want to pray for wisdom, for opportunities to do good to our neighbors, all our neighbors, not just those who live next door. We want to continue to pray for the sick as well. We thank God for the recovery of Pastor Greg and for Andrea. She's doing She's doing better. Want to pray for Wayne and his and his recovery. Um, we want to pray, of course, for Rosemary. Want to pray for um, some of you uh, may know the family um, Jeffrey Olang, the Olangs. Um, I asked him if if um, we could pray for that, pray for this particular request this evening, but. His father was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. And so we want to, again, lift the family up uh, for strength, for grace in these times, for opportunities for the gospel as well, for opportunities to show forth goodness. And so as we have often uh, exhorted and encouraged the body here at at Grace. Uh, We don't have as many uh, in terms of the numbers, um, but we do want to exhort again the men to lift up their voices in in prayer, to to take these things to the Lord in prayer, and to do again what we have been exhorted by the scriptures to do. So with that, let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that builds up, that convicts, that corrects. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to figure things out, but you have given us clear direction. You have given us clear instruction. Lord, I pray even as we look at Christ, even as we 
consider all of the parables in which we have heard today. May those things indeed stir us up to have compassion on the lost, compassion for our neighbor. Lord, may you cause us to uh, cry out to you, Lord, when we, when we just don't want to deal with the sins of others. May, we, may you soften our hearts, Lord, and cause us, like that, that holy prophet again, to have our eyes fixed upon Christ, to see ourselves in light of Christ, and to see Christ, to see our Savior as he truly is. Holy and beautiful and full of love and compassion. May his love and compassion be our love and compassion as well. May we imitate our heavenly father and our older brother. May we seek to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. May we have our minds set towards heaven even while we are here upon earth. May we see the needs of others and seek to provide those needs because again, this is who we are. This is not some trick. This is not some, some bait and switch for us to get people to show people one thing and then, they, and then we trick them with the gospel. No, this is who we are by nature. You have changed us, O oh God. You have changed our hearts. You have made us those who love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so may that same love compel us to labor for the Lord, to have compassion for the lost, to go after those, to seek and to save those who are lost, knowing that we in and of ourselves have no power. For all of the power resides in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are shut up to you, Heavenly Father, we are shut up to you in these matters. And so we lean upon you for the results. We trust in your results. Lord, we thank you for how you have worked your will in such a way that you are building your kingdom, that you are establishing and, and expanding your kingdom through the work of the church. to those who have been shown much mercy, may we in turn show mercy and grace to others as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.